know many of you have, uh, have heard uh, how Esther and I uh, kind of got together. It's, it's a fun story. It's too long to tell the whole thing. Um, but I want to tell a little piece of it um, today because I think it bears on our message. Um, uh, when, <laughs> when, uh, when we started dating, um, I was almost utterly convinced that she didn't like me at all. Like, um, couple, couple reasons. Um, the very first date was when I, I'm a huggy person. Like, I like, to, I like to hug people. I'm a handshaker. I'm a toucher. I'm a grabber. Um, and so, we're on our first date, and we went to a, to a, a passion play. We went to an Easter passion play. And at some point in the evening, I put my arm around Esther just to kind of hug her a little bit. And she literally, like, stiffens up. Like, like, like physically, noticeably, like, oh, my God, he touched me. Like, and I was like, ooh, okay, that's all limits, you know. And then, um, and then the best part was, uh, it was a, it was a, we, we went to this pastor, we came back, we played hide and go seek at some friend's house. It was just a, kind of a, a, a totally platonic date. Like, it was, it was totally normal. Um, and then I drove her home and took her over the door. And I know a lot of you have heard this, but she had made a deal with God years before that um, because guys didn't really get close to her. Her two best friends were like three years older than her and big guys. And so nobody even got anywhere near her. And so she was trying to make a deal with God to basically, because um, she was in love with this other guy, to basically never give anybody else a shot. And so she was talking to a friend and she was like, if anybody ever was stupid enough to kiss me on the first date, because she's imposing, like, she's, she's not easy to get close to, um, then I would give that person a shot. <laughs> yeah, the date totally did not call for it. It was not appropriate in the moment. I walked in the door, and I leaned in for a kiss. And I kissed her, and she went, like, it was like kissing a tree. Like, it was, there was nothing, yeah, I got nothing back. Um, and so I went home, my buddy was like, hang on. I was like, dude, I totally blew it. Like, I kissed her. Like, the day didn't even call for that. I don't even know what I was thinking. Man, that was stupid. And so I gave up. I was like, I'm done, you know. And then uh, I get a call from a, from a mutual friend that I say. She's like, holy cow, Esther's all in. Like, Esther loved it. Like, she, and I was like, are you kidding me? They're like, no, she totally did. And I was like, okay, okay I'll call her back. And so I call her up and want to go out again. And she said yes. And, and we went again. And she was just as cold. Like, and I was, and so I was like, I, I'm getting mixed signals here. And the lady was like, trust me, I've known Esther her whole life. She's into you. And I was like, okay. This is not how I do this, but whatever. I'm in. And so, uh, so and, and it was moving pretty fast. And so, and I know I've told a lot of you guys this. Um, you know, I, I was falling quick. I was, I, my heart was gone. Like, it was, it was gone the first time I saw her. Like, it was gone. And, uh. And so we're, I walked her out to her car one night. We'd been at these friends at park, and I was like, hey, I, I know this is early. I know this is crazy, and I'm not expecting a response, but I want you to know I'm, I love you. I'm falling in love with you. She goes, thank you. Got her car and left. I was like, that's just not how I, <laughs> I, told, I told her she could say thank you. Because I didn't want to, you know, but yeah, she, she said thank you. Got her car and left. I was like, that's not how I saw that going. But what's crazy is if I hadn't had people, like, telling me to continue, I would have bailed a long time ago. And that's the piece I want to get across. Like, it took more than just Esther and I to get together. And that's going to bear on our story today. We're in our 10th week of this year's 
summer series. We're walking along with the early church through some of the twists and turns and big movements and transitions that confronted the earliest Jesus followers um, as they tried to figure out what it was supposed to look like to live fully in the kingdom of God while also living in the first century Roman kingdom and, and what that looked like to blend those two. Um, we've now seen the church kind of navigate the changing of the laws that move them from just another kind of protected sect of Judaism to now this isolated um, and even targeted faith system. Um, before that, there was, there was dozens of different sects within Judaism, and they were all kind of protected under this Jewish blanket. And the second the Jewish leaders said, you can no longer preach in this name, they were brought out from under that umbrella. And they're now this kind of targeted group of, of, uh, of faithful people. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, we kind of zoomed in on the very first Christian martyr, um, Stephen, and how his death and the subsequent persecution scattered the believers to Samaria, where the very first Samaritan believer gets baptized. And, uh, and if you remember, this precipitated Peter and John leaving Jerusalem for the first time. Since the resurrection, they haven't left since Jesus' um, uh, resurrection. Um, and they travel to, um, they, they leave to go to Samaria, um, where these first Samaritans um, had just gotten saved. They hadn't left before this. Uh, and, and I believe they go to kind of confirm that this was a real thing, because they were not necessarily comfortable with Samaritans getting saved at this point. It, it, just a couple months ago, Jesus was like, hey, don't. Don't go into Samaria, you know, yet. And, and so they, that's kind of been their voice. They didn't like Samaritans. They kind of had this thing hanging in their memory where Jesus kind of told them not to go there. So I don't think they had any immediate plans to go there. And all of a sudden, because of this persecution, somebody goes up. They lead the first Samaritans to Jesus, and Peter and John go up to see if it's real. And if you remember, the Holy Spirit confirmed that the door of salvation had, in fact, opened in Samaria by falling on the first Samaritans the same way he had on the first Jewish believers. Um, they go up, they lay hands on the Holy Spirit falls, and so now it's kind of a confirmation that Samaria is now open. Last week, um, a kind of huge transition point happens in the church because, um, because now they have a whole new mission field. And if you remember, Peter and John, as they were traveling back to Jerusalem, back to their home church, they hit every village on the way preaching Jesus because now there's this whole new area it's open to the gospel. Well, this morning is another huge transition, maybe the biggest transition in church history in this book. It's a huge one, um, which kind of reveals another interesting theme uh, in the book of Acts um, that we're going to talk about. But first, we're going to read our text. So I'll be reading in Acts chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 1, if you want to follow along in your own uh, Bible or app. And if not, um, it should be on your screen if you're online, or behind me uh, if you're here in the building. Um, meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on the mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. The voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, 
and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard a sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat nor drink. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, Go over the straight street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming and laying hands on him so he can see again. But, but Lord, and explained Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done in, to the believers in Jerusalem. And he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell off of Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among the Jesus followers in Jerusalem? They asked. Then didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to, to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching him day, day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus, and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus uh, in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord and with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. It also grew in numbers. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, first of all, uh, this, is a, this, this is great storytelling. I, I love how Luke tells us um, that Saul, Paul later, um, is who causes this persecution to happen. He tells us the story of Stephen dying and, and Saul being there and him getting the letters, and then uh, that all happens, and then he goes, and because they were scattered, Philip goes and does these things. So he, he goes and tells these stories about Philip going to Samaria, and Philip going down and saving this Ethiopian um, eunuch, and a couple other uh, things that Philip does, and then like any good storyteller, he goes, meanwhile, back at the ranch, you know, you know how some stories have that twist, and, and that's kind of what happens. He, so he's like, he follows Philip for a little bit, and then he goes, and while that's going on, Saul's over here doing this other thing, and so 
I love that it's not like this straight, linear, you know, because that's not the way we tell stories. You know, it's, you know, we normally go, oh, wait, before that, you know, and that's kind of what Luke does here, which is really great. So basically today's story is, uh, is likely happening while Philip is in Samaria. You know, this is going on kind of at the same time. Luke had to jump back to tell it because they overlapped a little bit. Um, so we slip back in time a little bit to catch an overlapping story. And what actually happens in this story is the conversion of Paul, um, which uh, is an incredibly, immeasurably major moment in church history. Uh, this guy who gets saved here in this chapter um, goes on to start local churches. Um, he takes the gospel into Europe for the first time. Um, he's the one who takes it out of Asia Minor for the first time and into Europe. So this guy is responsible for the entire spread of the gospel west, not to mention writing two-thirds of our New Testament. This, like, you, none of us would have, would have happened if not for this chapter. This is maybe one of the biggest turning points in Western history in this chapter today. Acts chapter 9 was the beginning of all of that movement. Um, and, and this is the theme that I love in this, in this book, is that most of the biggest moments in Luke's story um, about the early church can only be seen in retrospect. Like, I love that this is really just a story about a guy getting saved. And nobody at this point had any idea that this was going to be Paul. Like, the Paul. Like, there, this, is just, this is just a guy who, who was causing trouble in the church reaches out to him, and he gets saved. Um, none of these are obvious. We talked about how the first time Peter and John were taken before the Jewish council, um, the law got changed, and they were, they were threatened. You know, you can no longer preach in this name, um, which is huge, and it's even bigger when God kind of validates later that night at, at some prayer meeting at somebody's house, God shakes the building, almost as if to say, you don't need the temple. I'm not stuck in the temple. I'm wherever you are praying. I'm there moving things and, and shaking things, which is huge except it's in retrospect you see that from that moment on the attachment to the temple shrinks and the church kind of starts to move for the first time away from the temple. Up to then it was all still in the temple. And so you only get how huge of a transition point that is in retrospect. You look back and go, like, man, that was, a, that was a big shift in the story. At the time, it was just, man, we just, you know, we were just told we can't do this anymore. That's kind of a bummer. You know, but it turns out to be huge. We talked about how the persecution that <clears throat> caused the believers to run for their lives, literally, because they were now killing Christians. Uh, Stephen had just died. Um, Luke describes it uh, as scattering, as a scattering, which in the Greek language is a farming term. It means to sow seed. It's not used anywhere else in the Bible. It's really only used when you talk about planting something. And so the way Luke chooses to tell the story is that he doesn't choose to tell the story of this, this persecuted church running for your life. He chooses to say God was planting his people in places, in fertile soil where there would be growth. Um, and you only see that in retrospect. You know, when you first see it, it looks like they're running for their lives. But in retrospect, you look back and go, oh my gosh, now there's these new areas opened up for the gospel. Because we talk about how Peter and John take a, a simple trip to go check on Philip and see if, you know, kind of confirm his ministry and see if what's happening is right. And that opens up a whole new area. Now they've got new towns to preach in. Basically, all these huge moments uh, keep happening. And although we're able, when we look back, to study them and pull them out and highlight them. 
I doubt anyone living through them did that. You know, to them, it was Tuesday. <laughs> and, you know, it's not like the world just changed. You know, no, it's like, now what do we do? You know, it's, it's the next step. Um, I've read books from pastors talking about how they planted their churches and, and all the, you know, the things that happened. And, uh, and what always jumps out at me is when I read them, every single chapter sounds miraculous. Like, you're like, man, God just, just made so much stuff happen for this, you know, church to, to become what it was. And, and each chapter is broken up into these clean, like, hurdles that happened, you know, in order for this church to... And it makes the whole thing sound so divinely ordained, which is awesome. And, uh, and, and we were probably a year into Open Table when I look back over... Our story, I was kind of trying to imagine what a book about Open Table um, would look like. And I was actually kind of shocked because when we first started thinking about planting a church, there was nothing but hurdles. Like, and and uh, we had no place to meet. We kind of looked into Edgerton Elementary, which cost a fortune, and you got almost nothing. And, like, almost everybody I had on board at the time was like, I'm not doing the school thing. I think that was about the only... The only, like, stipulation they put on it, we're not doing the school thing. That's that's too much work. And so that didn't seem, but we had nowhere else. And I was just talking to a friend, a random conversation. He was like, it'd be cool if, like, another church in town would let you use their building. And I was like, where are we going to And so I called up Edgerton United Methodist Church, and I asked, you know, what, what the pastor thought. And he was like, that would be a stretch. He was like, I'll, I'll call the, the conference to whatever the regional thing, see what they think. And so he called me back. He's like, they're actually open to it if the congregation okays it. I was like, awesome. He's like, no, 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 don't get your hopes up. Like, the, the, these people are, are kind of stuck in their ways. And I was like, okay. And so Esther and I went to church there one Sunday, hung around afterwards. They had a big uh, congregational meeting, and they asked us questions. We answered them. You know, we gave them our vision. We told them the thing. And, uh, and from what I understand, the pastor told me, um, that to this day, the decision to allow Open Table Community Church to plant in their building is still the only unanimous vote they've ever had on any issue ever. And, and yeah, we were like, so we were excited. The place was perfect. It was, it was great for us, like great kids' spaces. It was a huge hurdle. Uh, but several of our, you know, planters still felt like we needed some, some things before this happened. We wanted the people we were... Uh, at the churches we were currently at to kind of bless us. We didn't want to leave a whole, you know, big line of burned bridges behind us. And so, you know, and that looked like it was going to be insurmountable. And we had the conversations and, and people blessed us on the way out, which was weird. And it really raised morale. Like, like this is going to happen. We're going to do this. And when we started thinking about purchasing this building, we called who's a guy who's a banker who helps churches and we know him personally. Like, we're we, we've known him, gone to church with him for a long time. Literally laughed at me on the phone, like out loud. We're like, we've been to church for about a year. We're about this size. He busted up laughing. Like, dude, not a chance. Nobody loans money to a one-year-old church your size. I'm sorry. It just doesn't happen. I'm like, man. So it didn't look like that was going to happen. We called the bank here in Wellsville. They were like, sure. We'll work with you. They were like, this is crazy, you know. We didn't tell them that the other guy laughed. We was like, you know, we've got other options. No. And then there was some issues with the roof and the, and the church that owned it before us. 
wasn't going to fix any of it, but our insurance company wasn't going to cover it if they didn't. And so it looked like it was going to die. And we were trying to, like, hear from God and, and God, if you shut the door, we're not going to fight it. So, hey, if it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. And then, like, literally in the final, you know, 10 seconds of the game, he decides he's going to put a new roof on it, blah, 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 blah. And it all happened. And it's, like, sitting in our lap. And we're like, what in the world? And then the second we close the deal, we get a letter from the city. <laughs> Samuel's playing a new character today. Pretty great. Everybody look at Samuel. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> um, the second we close the deal, we get a letter from the city going, hey, by the way, your lagoon does not meet code, and so you can't occupy the building. And we were like, shouldn't we have known that before we closed? He was like, yeah, somebody was supposed to tell you. We were like, whoop. And so we... we uh, and so I was like, we had another uh, another guy who had called up, and and, uh, and he called me. He was like, so that didn't go very well. I lost my temper. I was like, what? He was like, yeah. He was like, well, you should have known. And then I started yelling at him because there was no way for us to know. And he started yelling back, and I was like, dude, you're killing me. So I was praying about it. I was, up here, I was at the church on a Monday night, and I was praying. And, and uh, I just felt like God kind of laid in my heart to just call up humbly and ask for help. So I called the guy up at the county, and I was like, hey, dude, like, is there anything we can do? I'm so sorry. My buddy was rude to you. We're just trying to find a way to be a blessing to Wellsville. Like, we don't even, like, we don't want anything. We just want to do good. We want this lagoon to do what it's always done. Like, we're not asking for anything special. He was like, oh, yeah, there's options. <laughs> and so he was like, all you got to do is get the permission of the guy who owns the land around you, which is Stan Kine, that had just bought it to put Burt's in that whole deal. So I call him up, and we start up this friendship that stands amazing, and he, uh, so not only did he say, yeah, absolutely, you know, do whatever you want to, I want a church there, but not long later, he hooked us up the sewer and just got rid of our lagoon altogether, because it, it was going to be like 25 grand for, a, for the septic system we needed, knowing that it's only going to be a couple years before sewer comes through anyway, so Stan was like, why don't I just hook you up the sewer? And we've started a great relationship with Stan, which is amazing. All came out of this terrible thing that was in our way. And, then, and they're the ones who are currently cutting our grass. And they called me this weekend, hey, we got new covers for your window wells. Is it okay if we put those on? And I was like, no, I'm going to say no. <laughs> Stop improving our building. No, of course. Yeah, please. You know. And none of this even touches on the way God has sent, like, amazing people to us and all the great stories that go with that. I mean, the first several years of the church, I did all the tech myself. I had one of these things and I would set it all up and I would I'd be out here going, if you guys remember, it was rough every week. I mean, it was, I, was like, I don't know, guys, I'm sorry. It's, I mean, it's not a lot better. I still fight with my tech, but it was rough. And then, you know, one week I, I, I get up, the very first week I'd ever done it, I get up and like, I really need a tech guy if anybody does tech, blah, blah, blah happened to be the very first Sunday Brett ever came to church here. And he came up and like committed the rest of his life to us. He was like, hey, I am your tech guy. I don't even want you to ask anybody else. I'm the guy. Put me to work. And I was like, dude, let's get to know each other. He's like, no, no, no. I'm the guy. I feel like this is God. I know this is God. And what's funny is within a month, we're talking about lockdown. And, and there's no way I could have done everything anymore. Because we had an online thing to run. And it was like, God knew you're going to need this guy. And that happens. We needed a tech guy all of a sudden, and God sent one. And those kind of stories just go on and on and on and on. I met Jess at Wellsville Days. 
And in this crazy act of cooperation, she came up and said, hey, we got all kinds of kids' curriculum if you want it, and we don't need it anymore. You can just take and use. And it, it started this kind of friendship with her and Matt, and, and we started talking to them. And now they basically run the church. I, my, my kids all the time are like, hey, who's teaching in Kevin 56? I'm like, I have no idea. They're like, Dad, you're the pastor. I'm like, yeah, they're just the I don't have a clue. Like, just tell me what to do. I just don't play. You know. Always. Reg was going through a tough situation. I gave him a call out of the blue. Hey, man. Because I've been through something similar. I was like, if you, if you want to get together and talk, um, just let me know. One of those things you say, but you don't think anybody's really going to take you up on it. You know, you, hey, if you really want to talk, you're not going to talk to me. But, you know, i got to put it out there. Reg was like, yeah, let's do lunch. So we did, you know, one of those quick little four-hour lunches. And... And, uh, which turns out was actually a fairly short conversation for Reg and I. I mean, that, that was one of the quick ones. Um, now he's one of my closest buddies and, and, and helps out around here immensely. And I could tell the same type of story about almost everybody. I mean, he just comes stumbling in, and then the next thing you know, we need him. <laughs> like, have to have him. Don't know how we would do without him. And here's the thing none of this stuff feels huge when it happens. You, none of this feels like, like life-changing. When it, ha- it feels like Tuesday, you know. Even when the Methodist Church voted yes, it was like, that's awesome, but there's about 4,500 hurdles still in front of us. So let's not get too excited, you know, because it could still fall apart tomorrow. And then you clear the next hurdle, and you're like, yeah, great, but it could still fall apart tomorrow. Like, you never know. None of this stuff feels big until you look back. And then you see... That God was at work all along. He was moving all along. I almost guarantee none of these big transitional moments in the book of Acts felt like big transitional moments until Luke looked back to tell the story. And he was like, yeah, this persecution broke out, but you cannot believe how beneficial that turned out to be. Like, all these churches wouldn't have existed without it. Like, I know it's just one guy and I'm telling the salvation story of one dude, but you don't understand. We wouldn't have the Bible without that story. Like, you, and you, you only know that looking back. Today's story is maybe one of the biggest transition moments in history. This guy is hell-bent on ending the church and he gets saved. Which is awesome in and of itself, but it begs one question. Who on earth could have guessed that this guy would not only become a believer, but would have the impact on history that he turned out to have? And the, and the answer to that question is obviously God. God is the only one who could have known that. God knew that Paul would impact history the way that he did. And this is the power of looking backwards in, in, in the narrative arc of Scripture. Is from our vantage point, we get to see what only God could see in real time. God gets to see it in real time. We can only see it when we look back through the narrative for instance, Moses is a baby. Just the son of a stubborn woman who, who, who decides to rebel. She's a, she's a rebellious woman. And I know all about the... No, get it. Get it. She put her life on the line to protect her baby. It's just a mom who, who, who puts her life on the line to protect her son. And when, the rebellion, when her rebellion became impossible to hide... She puts him in God's hands. And he just, he just happens to land in, in Pharaoh's house where he gets to be raised and taught 
this brand new technology called writing that was about 10 minutes old at the time. He gets trained by the people who created writing, and he just happens to learn it. Big shocker. Like, the guy who's going to start writing the Bible is the guy who learns it when it's like three minutes old. So he lands right in this Jewish baby, lands in a school where writing was just recently invented. And he's thoroughly trained and educated. And when he's ready, God calls him to a ministry where he's going to need 100% of that training and education. And you could argue that, that there was no one else on the planet that had the skill set to fill that role at that time. But God groomed Moses for that. God knew. God knew exactly who he was going to need for that moment. And so he prepares the perfect person. And that's the feel I get from Paul. God was obviously already rocking the first century with fishermen and tax collectors and ordinary people. But God was planning for a level of theological work that was going to require a thoroughly trained and educated Jewish theologian. Somebody trained in, rhetoric, in Greek rhetoric and, and Torah theology. Someone who could clearly articulate the gospel to not only the first century, but to the 21st century. We learn later in the book that Paul was trained by Gamaliel, who's this renowned Pharisee. And he's also on the Sanhedrin. Pharisees weren't automatically on the Sanhedrin. To have a Pharisee sitting on the, the Sanhedrin was kind of a big deal. Gamaliel was, was a big deal. He was a grandson of Hillel, who was like maybe Hillel and Shemaiah were maybe the two most famous rabbis in history, and Gamaliel was Hillel's grandson. And, and Paul trains under him as a, as a disciple. Trains under one of the most famous rabbis in Jewish history. So, in our parlance, Paul went to Harvard. Like, this is a guy who is as, as thoroughly trained as you could, you could get. And he's, and he's a diaspora Jew, which means he, he, he also had Greek learning and Greek training. We find out later that he claims Roman citizenship, which means he would have had been trained to talk to not only the Jewish people, but the, the wider Hellenistic culture. It was like there was no one else alive in this day who was more qualified than Paul to become Paul. Like, and God, on a road to another town, grabs him and says, I need you. I've prepared you. I've trained you. I've, I've built you up for this moment. I mean, it's, it probably explains a lot why God opens up the heavens and shines on this guy, because this guy had been prepared for this moment. Which brings up one of my favorite realities, which is this. God has been preparing you for your calling, whatever that may be, long before you realize it. He's been preparing you for the work he has for you since before you were born. God didn't just like receive you and go, what am I going to do with this guy? <laughs> like, what am I going to do with this gal? <laughs> Where's she going to fit? No, 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 no. When you look back at your story, you find out, man, I was, like I was made for this. Like, almost everything led to this moment. This is like exactly what I needed to fit into this place at this time. 
But as awesome as it is to imagine the, the play of God's sovereignty on, on our lives and the way it all fits together and how huge that is to contemplate, God's impact on history that way and the way that He moves pieces, that's amazing. But it's not really what I want to talk about this morning. Because although I think you'd be really, really hard-pressed to find a single day that has more of an impact on history than this day, I mean, you could maybe argue that the resurrection um, had a bigger impact on history or, or, or Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell in the church arguably did as well. But I don't think we would know about those truths if not for what happens this day. This day, God saved the person who was going to be able to communicate those realities to history. I don't know that, especially in Western culture, I don't know that you could have had a, a moment in history that changed the course of everything this dramatically. I don't, I don't think the import of today's passage can be exaggerated. Which automatically draws my attention to the supporting players. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling, Ananias, yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see. Ananias is a nobody. We have never heard of Ananias before this moment, and we don't hear about him again after this moment. He is in the Bible for about that long. And he's the one who gets to pray for Paul. We've never heard of him. And he vanishes into obscurity after this morning's passage. This was his role. This moment. And he wasn't thrilled about it. But Lord, he exclaimed, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. He's authorized by leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Don't you love when you tell God things he already knows? Like, God, I don't think you know who you're talking about. But, Lord, isn't that a great phrase? But, Lord. How many of us have, how many of us have started a prayer that way? But, but God. How many of us have heard a sermon and we knew exactly what God was calling us to do? The first words out of our mouth are, but, but. We knew God was calling us to forgive someone. But, God. We knew what we were supposed to give away. But, Lord, we knew where we were supposed to go. We knew exactly what we were supposed to commit to. But, God, what? I love that Ananias' prayer is so real. But I also love that he ultimately obeys and went to Paul. Because what happens to history or our Bible if he doesn't. How huge of an impact on history and the church does Ananias have in this single act? This nobody. And he's not the only one. After Ananias prays for, for Paul, Paul gets baptized because he was, and because he was most likely staying in whatever housing had been arranged for him to go arrest Christians, like that was on the mission he's on, probably staying with some other Pharisees. He's on a, you know, he's probably staying at their house 
while he's blind and not eating. And so when Ananias comes and prays for him, he's like, we should probably leave. And these people aren't going to like you very much. And it leads to this. Afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days and immediately began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation amongst Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains back to leading priests? Saul's preaching became more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute any of his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Now think about this. As far as we know, there was no church in Damascus before the persecution. So these people are in Damascus because they ran from Jerusalem. And, and, and when they, because at this, when the persecution happens, the only real established church is in Jerusalem. They go to Damascus to get away from Paul. So they're the ones he's there to arrest. Like these are the people who are on his, you know, bounty hunter thing. They're the people he's there for. And they're like, yeah, you can stay here. What? These are the, the ones who just recently had to run so they wouldn't get killed. And, his, I mean, historically, Paul was actually using a, a, an extradition treaty that existed in, in Israel from the days of the Maccabees. When the Maccabees kind of fought for Israel's independence and gained it for a while, um, Rome was not the world power they became. And so uh, a bunch of the people who had been living in Jerusalem who were kind of backing the solutions, uh, who Antiochus Epiphany and that whole group, had, when Maccabees won, they fled. And so the Maccabees went to Rome and said, like, hey, can we come into Rome to get our people and drag them back and punish them? And they created a treaty between Rome and Israel whereby Israelites could, could go and extradite Jews back to them. And it seems that that's the exact same uh, treaty that Paul is using here to go to go into Rome to, to grab rebellious Jews and bring them back and punish them. So the believers who were in Damascus just recently arrived pleading from Paul and here comes Ananias saying, hey, this guy can't really stay with the Pharisees anymore. Can he stay with you? And this completely unnamed and barely remembered group of Christians years before he would have been known as the Apostle Paul. This is just a guy who wanted him dead yesterday. And they take him in. And they don't just give him a place to sleep. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. But Saul had been told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. So these refugees from Jerusalem put their lives at further risk to save this one guy. And when Paul gets to Jerusalem, they won't take him in at first. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers. But they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told him how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told him how Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. What happens to history and our Bibles 
if Barnabas doesn't step in the way he does. And if Paul is such a, uh, uh, and he he is such a powerful apologist, that it doesn't take long before the Jewish leaders want him dead too. In Jerusalem. And so this church with the apostles have to smuggle him out and send him home. What happens to our Bible if they don't do that? When we read chapter 9 in Acts, we, we have a tendency to focus on the miraculous salvation of the apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. But when we read this chapter, what I see today is the, the power of the entire church to affect history together. Because, because Paul doesn't become Paul if every single no-name player doesn't play their part. Billy Graham uh, preached live to about 210 million people, not to mention the countless who saw him on TV at some time or another. 210 million people looked at the man live while he proclaimed the gospel. And, and, and maybe nobody proclaimed it clearly. When he was still a nobody, he took a gamble in L.A. on a, on a revival conference. Got together with a couple churches. They rented a big tent and he decided to have a, a uh, just an outdoor revival. And almost nobody was showing up. It was going nowhere. And then one day he shows up and there's hundreds of reporters packed around the thing. And thousands of people in the seats. And he comes out to the reporters he's like, what is, what is going on? And one of the reporters that he talked to showed him a telegram from William Randolph Hearst that has two words just says Puff Graham, which apparently is the word they used for pump this guy up, put it out there, cover this story, make it big. And so every reporter in L.A. showed up to obey this command. Puff Graham is all it said, this thing. Hearst gave an interview one time and said that, that there was a, an old lady at the, when there was nobody there, there was an old lady that was, went to hear Billy Graham and liked him. She happened to be William Randolph Hearst's school teacher. And, and having a direct line to the man, called him up and said, you're going to want to cover this guy. And so, having never seen him, and having no idea what he was going to do, Hearst trusts her and goes, all right. And he sends out the telegram. Puff Graham. Billy Graham's nightly crusade exploded at this point. 350,000 people wound up coming to this crusade. They had to extend it an extra five weeks, preaching every single night for five weeks past the original rental. 350,000 people come, and it led to him preaching to hundreds of millions. And we don't even know that woman's name. And what happens if she doesn't make that phone call? The thing that I love about this morning's passage is the way that it proves that there is literally no small job in the kingdom of heaven. There is none. Because, because you have no idea what kind of ginormous impact the smallest action of love and obedience and kindness and goodness can have on history. So how do we respond to this? One of the biggest names in the Old Testament is, the, is Elijah, the prophet Elijah. After Abraham, Moses, and David, Elijah probably has the biggest impact on the Jewish story and imagination. In fact, the, the way that Elijah stood up to 
Ahab and Jezebel, the kind of like governmental, oppressive power force in his day, the way he kind of uh, stood up to them and called fire down from heaven. That kind of became the, the, the linchpin, the key to the Jewish imagination as they sat under Roman oppression. Like, we need another Elijah, somebody who can call down fire from heaven on these, these kind of overlords. So, they, so he was huge, this huge name in the Jewish story. And Elijah has this very dark moment in his life when, when he, uh, he's feeling lost. He's actually ready to go. He's like, Lord, take me. I'm done. And and the thing that turns him around, the thing that kind of brings him out of this darkness was when God showed him his efforts weren't for nothing. Elijah was basically like, everybody's dead except for me. And now they want me dead. And there's no way to change anything. There's no way to do real good. The problem's too big. I'm done. And the way that God brings him out of it, brings him out of his funk, is he says, I've got 7,000 unnamed Elijahs. Like 7,000 prophets who haven't bowed to Baal. Like, i got, I got more than enough people. It does not die with you. Like, they're, the power isn't in the big... In fact, the metaphor that God uses is... is uh, I, God's not in the earthquake and the fire and the big rowdy wind. He's in the whisper. God's in the little things. God's in the, in the small faithfulness. The revelation that saved this big-named guy, Elijah, this big-shot prophet, was that the real power is in the little, unremarkable, faithful followers. I have 7,000 that are still faithful to me. I'm doing fine. Not in the earthquake and the fire and the wind, it's in the whisper. One of the difficult challenges of reading the Bible with kind of our modern literary experience is that we're trained when we read in the Western world to put ourselves in the place of the protagonist. That's what you're supposed to do. Like none of us root with the bad guy. You know, I mean, like, like now postmodernism's trying to screw with that a little bit, but for the most, for the most part, we see ourselves in the protagonist, right? In other words, we want to be the main character in the story. Ancient literature didn't do it that way. They didn't, they didn't write it so you could see yourself in the main character. When you think about the, the Greek mythology, you weren't supposed to see yourself as Hercules. Hercules is a demigod. You're supposed to look up to Hercules. Like They didn't do it like we do, where you, you see yourself as the main character. In that same literary style, the Bible highlights a remarkably small number of people and when you think of the, the names we know from the Bible, when you think about the fact that they cover 3,500 years, I mean, 1,500 years of written scripture, there's a remarkably small cast of characters for 1,500 years. And, and mostly, what they did was recorded because it was so weird. <laughs> like, because it was so unique. And yet, when we read it, we each want to be David, we want to be Elijah, we want to be Moses. And, and then not that there's anything wrong with that. The story of God is mostly about the millions and probably billions of unnamed, ordinary people who faithfully followed God in obscurity. I mean, just, just for the scriptures to get to us, how many scribes had to protect it and carefully copy it and interpret it 
and, and save it and so forth so that the Scripture could... We don't know any of those names. We wouldn't have a Bible without them. I mean, the, the, the rabbis who wrote the, the... who captured and wrote the prophetic books, they don't even know their names. For the... For the the traditions and practices of the faith that we have, prayer and worship and all the things. How many moms had to teach how many kids how to pray at how many bedtimes for those to move through history the way they did? So the first way that I would love for us to respond to this message is to recognize the, the power and potential in every moment. When you follow Jesus, there is simply no throwaway moments. There's no meaningless relationships. You have no idea when you are are meeting or, or praying for or taking a meal to or listening to or welcoming or protecting the next poll or raising the next Billy Graham, the next R.C. Stroll. You don't know if you are changing the diaper of the one who will change the world. There are no wasted acts of love in the kingdom of God. None of them are throwaway. Most of the biggest world changers, we have no idea who they are. Thank God they were where they were supposed to be. The second way that I would love um, for us to respond to this message requires me to preach at you a little bit. So just remember, I'm a professional hypocrite. To do this job, you have to be a hypocrite. So I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching at us. Because maybe the most powerful theme in today's story is the extreme lack of selfishness and self-preservation in these stories. When God calls Ananias, Ananias obviously has some self-preservation in his immediate response to God. But God, but he ultimately puts his neck on the line to obey. And all through this chapter, people are taking huge gambles to welcome in this guy that they obviously had major issues with. Probably issues of unforgiveness and bitterness and anger. I mean, this guy had killed their friends. And they take him in. There's a major sense that love comes first. That welcome comes first. That acceptance comes first. That the gospel comes first. And obviously, once Paul is proven to be good at preaching Jesus and arguing for the faith, there's this sense that that as much as they might not like the guy who just killed Stephen and arrested and killed other Christians, the gospel has to come first. And here's where the preaching comes in. We have a, a natural tendency when we think about church, when we're considering the faith and Christianity in general, to ask the question, what's in it for me? How is this going to improve my life? What am I going to get out of this? We've allowed our our faith system to become consumer-driven. We consider churches on the basis of whether or not they have the things we need or whether or not we like the music or whether or not they have good coffee. Not that that's a bad thing. 
or whether or not we can get in and out as quick and easy as we'd like. It's not bad to want any of those things, but I think we need to first ask, what can I give? What can I bring to the table? Who can I bless? Who needs to see my face at church this morning? Not, do I need to go, but who needs me to go? Who needs me to see them this morning? Who's going to feel encouraged just because I showed up? Oh, fam, who, who needs a text from you or an IM from you this week? At your work, what's it look like if you started looking for ways to be a blessing to the people around you? Yeah, you're contractually obligated to give a good day's work for a fair pay, and that's, that's the part that's, that's agreed to. But what's it look like if you went about to go, I'm here today on, on purpose. I'm here to be a blessing. I'm here because somebody needs me today to bless them, to give them a good word, to love on them, whatever. In fact, I'm going to ask you, write it down if you need to be praying for Reg. Reg made a friend at work, and she's not currently going to church or super attached. Her daughter daughter was murdered last week. Uh, Horrible. And right now, Reg sits in a weird, unique position where she's talking to Reg about life and faith and what this all means. And nobody else has that voice in her life right now. And Reg feels the weight of it. Nobody else stands in that spot. So please pray for Reg because that's a huge, that's a huge responsibility to know that God sent you because he went to work to be a blessing and he made friends with this person. That usually, you might not. You might just say, I'm here to do a job. I'm in and out. Reg made a relationship, and now he stands in a crazy, unique spot that needs prayer. It needs to be covered in prayer. Ananias changed history by selflessly, selflessly praying for a murderer. The church in Damascus changed history by helping a guy who came to arrest them. And they helped him avoid arrest. Barnabas changed history by leveraging his good reputation to vouch for someone who no one else would accept. And the Jerusalem church changed history by not only accepting someone they didn't like, but also saving his life and getting him to safety. The entire gospel story is about Jesus getting himself away for you and for me. Not thinking of himself. And we're called to follow in those footsteps. Loving because He loved. Giving because He gave. Showing up because He showed up. The reason I don't talk about heaven and hell a whole lot is because I don't... I don't it's not because I don't believe in them. I do, obviously. It's because I fear that the decision to follow Jesus just to get to heaven is a pretty selfish act. We're called to be selfless. We're called to be like Jesus because we love Him. Heaven is the bonus. That's the awesome part. Not, it's not the goal. The goal is Jesus. And then when you pursue that goal, heaven is like this amazing blessing icing on the cake. One of my favorite 
books. He's practicing the presence of God by Brother Lawrence. And, and Brother Lawrence has this moment in the book where he had been a soldier. He'd done terrible things. He, he joins this monastery just uh, as a, a brother, so not a priest, but just to work and serve and be a part of this monastery. And, and he said for the first five years he was there, he was convinced he was going to hell just because of the things he'd done. He didn't really understand grace. And so he, but he decided that if I'm going to spend eternity separate from God, I'm going to enjoy all of His presence I can for the next five years because then it'll be gone and I won't be able to, for the next 20 years or for however long I'm alive, I'm going to get as close to God as I can because then once I die, I won't get to see Him anymore. How different is that from the way we think? Most of us are like, if I'm going to hell, I'm going to live it up while I can. But Brother Lawrence was like, if, I, if I'm going to spend eternity without God's presence, I want all of it I can have now. That's such a different approach to go, I don't, I don't care if I'm going to have hell. I want Jesus right now in my life because He's awesome. The goal is Jesus. The only reason we go to heaven is because, incidentally, that's where Jesus is. And we so desperately want to be with Jesus that we just happen to wind up where He is. So as we track this early church to see what their Christian life should look like in 2021, I can't help but draw from today's passage that they took this outward focus of love seriously. Very seriously. So as we come to the table today, who's your pole? Who is it that God has said, go be a blessing to them? I know you don't like them. I know you don't want to. I know it's frustrating. So as you come to the table, bring that name with you. Bring your Paul with you. And start asking right now, God, send me. Send me. Because I want to make a difference. Let's go to the table. On the night before his arrest, Jesus could 